Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. It is really, really great to see you. Um, and having some, having spent some time over the last couple of months looking at mission and focusing heavily on that, which has been great, um, we're moving on this week to a brand new uh, sermon series. And we're going to be looking, as Tom said, at the first letter of John in the New Testament. Now, if you were to turn to 1 John in the Bible that you've got near you, by all means do. It's, it's right near the end, just a couple of very short books before Revelation. And um, if you were to look at 1 John, you'll notice that it's a letter, but it's anonymous. Uh, the same is true of 3 John and 2 John, which simply says it's written by the elder. So why, you might ask, do we call these letters 1, 2 and 3 John? How do they get that name? Well, it's because if you look at the whole New Testament in its original Greek, you can see certain writing styles matching up between the different books. All of Paul's letters, for example, all 13 of them, bear a relatively similar writing style, giving us clues that they're written by the same person. The same is true of Luke's gospel and Acts. This means we tend to group these books together as being by the same person. And the style of 1, 2 and 3 John is pretty much identical, you know, in its vocabulary and grammar to the style of John's gospel. Hence, one, two, and three John, all written in the same very distinctive style. But you'll be relieved to know that you don't need to be able to read Greek to see the similarity. You don't even need to find Greek interesting like I do. You can see this plainly in the English as well. You might know that the beginning of John's gospel goes like this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And with that in mind, the opening of 1 John is going to sound quite familiar. Let's get right into it by reading verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Well, this morning, I'm going to kind of introduce our series in 1 John and then preach on the first topic. But to, in, by way of introduction, John is again, like in the Gospel of John, writing about a timeless, eternal truth that Jesus, who is the son of God and God himself made manifest in human flesh, came to earth, died for the sins of God's people and rose again. John, alongside several others, were close-up eyewitnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and now they've been given the task by Jesus himself to tell the whole world about it. John is writing to a group of churches, probably in an unknown location, and you might have noticed in those first few verses that he's particularly concerned about one thing. It's a Greek word, koinonia, and we translate it as fellowship. 
Verse three, once again, says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So put more simply, John wants the churches he's writing to to be together. That's what fellowship means. It, in heart and mind and faith and values, John wants them to be one. He wants them to have fellowship with him and the other apostles and church leaders. He wants them to have fellowship with one another. And he wants them to have fellowship, of course, with God. The likely context of this letter, there are some clues later on, is that some groups have splintered off from the church and they've begun to preach a message which denies that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is the key to salvation and eternal life. So John's urgency, his desire for the churches to have fellowship with him, one another and God is an effort to strengthen them in the truths of the gospel in the face of this factionalism and bitter division. And he doesn't just want to tell them what the gospel is. He wants to show them why each one of these truths about God and us is concrete and steadfast. Several times later on in the letter, he uses the phrase, this is how we know. And that's the title of our series. And when you're going to ground something in the truth of the gospel, it makes sense to start with God. That's exactly what John does. He begins by saying that God is light. And tied up in this description of God is a message about the power of confession in bringing fellowship in the church. We're going to think this morning about God being light and why John thinks confession is such a good thing for all Christians to do. Let's continue reading at verse five. We're going to read the rest of John, uh, 1 John 1. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Well, strong words from John about the character of God. And there are going to be lots of those and about what God expects of us and the value of this thing called confession. All of this written in the hope that the church will have fellowship with God and with one another. But let's take a moment to think a bit more about what John says about God. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. One of the only things, honestly, that I remember from high school science is the formula for plants growing. OK, this was embedded in my memory. They need carbon dioxide. They need water. And crucially, they need light. Without that crucial ingredient of light, a plant cannot produce food through photosynthesis, right? If you put a plant in a dark cupboard, or if you have an indoor plant, but you never open your blinds, that plant's gonna die. And human beings are not massively different. Not only do we need sunlight to produce the plants and the crops that we eat, but we also need natural light on our skin on a regular basis. Actually, scientists have discovered that when we spend short amounts of time in the sun, our bodies produce vitamin D, which has benefits for both physical and mental health. 
It's normal for people, therefore, to be less healthy in the winter months because of the relative absence of light. Put simply, light is a good thing. It causes things to grow and thrive and it sustains life. I can guarantee you that John didn't know about photosynthesis and he didn't know about vitamin D, but he certainly knew that light meant life. The beginning of 1 John, just like the beginning of John's gospel, is written kind of as an echo of the first chapter of the whole Bible, Genesis 1. This is a creation account, a very poetic retelling of God's construction of the earth and everything in it. Now, you'll know probably from Genesis 1 that God creates plants and birds and sea creatures and mammals and, of course, human beings who are charged with wisely ruling over the rest of creation. But before any of those organisms could possibly exist, God had to create an environment which would keep them alive. This is why the first thing God creates in Genesis 1 is light, because nothing else could survive without light. It's funny, of course, the creation account has been the subject of so much debate over the centuries, with science and faith often considered to be bitter enemies on this. But without wading into that this morning, I would dare to say there's something quite scientific, actually, about the fact that light comes first. Nothing can live without light, and light comes from God, which means God is the source of all life. When John says that God is light, He's saying that God is the creator and sustainer of all life. He is the source of everything that is good, and he holds it all in his hands. But what about the other thing that John says, the, the other side to God being light? In God, there is no darkness at all. I don't know if you know much about gold or if you've ever bought anything that's made of gold, but the chances are that what you've bought is probably not pure gold. It might be. I'm not one to say, but the purity of gold, of course, is measured in carats. So 24 carat gold is pure gold and with it's got no other metals mixed into it. OK, but when you go down the numbers, it's less pure. So 18 carat gold is actually only 75 percent gold with other metals like silver and copper mixed in, etc., etc. John's point here by saying that God has no darkness at all is like saying that God is 24 karat gold. His character is entirely good. He is comprised completely of righteousness and holiness. Unlike 18 karat gold, 12 karat gold or six karat gold, there's nothing contaminating God's character. There is nothing in him except this light. In our world, we often wonder, I think, where morality comes from. Who decides what's good and bad and right and wrong? Well, human beings try and repeatedly fail to draw those lines. And the broken world as we know it is a result of human beings trying to establish and uphold their own man-made morality. Humankind has been corrupted, made in the image of God, but contaminated by sin. But God is different. He has been there since before the beginning. He, Jesus was the word at the beginning, as we sang a moment ago. God is responsible for sustaining life. He is completely holy and good. His morality is the only one which ultimately matters. But of course, God's perfect lightness, holiness, and our contaminated sinfulness comes with a compatibility issue. One way of looking at it, which kind of brings us back to this light metaphor, is to compare God's holiness to looking directly at the sun. 
There are some forms of light, not just the sun, but also things like welding torches and theater spotlights and headlights on BMW 4x4s, which are so powerful and intense that looking at them will cause actual damage to your eyes. You can literally sunburn your retina by looking directly at the sun for too long, all right? In the Bible, God's holiness is sometimes compared to a consuming fire, which engulfs anything which enters his presence but is unworthy to do so. That's how holy God is. People actually die in the Old Testament because they enter the presence of God but are sinful. You can read about one example in 1 Samuel chapter 6 where this happens. But sometimes in the Bible, we see that God allows somebody to come into his presence to converse with him. And this is always someone whom God has big plans for. This was particularly true of Moses, who in Exodus 34 had an encounter with God where Moses actually left God's presence with his face visibly shining. Being in God's presence, being up, up close to God in this way had actually altered Moses' appearance. Why was his face shining? Well, because God is light. John wasn't the first person to say this by any means. Psalm 27, written by David a thousand years earlier, begins, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? So John is building on this rich tradition of God being light to celebrate the uncontaminated, uncompromising holiness, purity, righteousness and goodness of God. But of course, if God is so holy that sinful human beings cannot enter his presence, have relationship with him, then what do we do? How can we become pure enough to stand before God? How can we call ourselves his people? How can we be in fellowship like John wants us to be or in relationship with the eternal God? Well, John goes on to explain this, he says this in verses six to seven. If we claim we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. What John is urging us to ask ourselves here is why, if we claim to have a relationship with God, would we want to live our lives in a way that dishonors him? Why, if we claim to love him, would our lives say something other than that? I love my wife, Claire, very much, and she loves me. And I hope that that's obvious to everyone who knows us. Why, if I claim to have a loving marriage with Claire, would I go about my life bad-mouthing her and chasing after only the things that I want? That wouldn't be right at all, would it? As we read through 1 John, we're going to see John return again and again to this key idea that if we truly love Jesus, our lives will naturally show evidence of that. But John goes on to talk about when we do walk in the light as Christians in verse seven. That is when we live our lives in a way that honors and glorifies God. And he says when we do this, an incredible exchange goes on. We might not get to meet with God in the same way Moses did. We don't get to come away from a time of prayer and worship with physically shining faces necessarily. But we get something even greater. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Jesus died on the cross, the son of God crucified for the sin of the world and his innocent blood allows us to approach God 
Elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about uh, Jesus' blood acting like a cloak that covers over our sinfulness as we come into God's presence in reverence and awe, approaching the throne with confidence. And in the last day, we get to enter God's kingdom and inherit eternal life. This is mind blowing. It's even greater than having a shiny face after meeting with God, because this is permanent and for anyone who believes in Jesus. And when we in the church commit individually to glorifying God in our lifestyles, well, that's one of the things that brings fellowship with one another as those who know that we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. But what does it actually mean? I want to uh, return to that phrase, walk in the light as he is in the light. What does that look like for us? And is it just about doing good things all the time? Well, no. It's not. John is about to go on to explain what he means by walking in the light. Let's read verses eight to nine once again. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So John has urged the church, and that includes us today to live lives which glorify God. And don't get me wrong, that definitely includes trying to cut sinful habits out of our lives and trying to obey God wherever possible. But the truth is, we don't always get that right. In fact, it's probably fair to say that more often than not, we get it wrong. Although the death of Jesus has paid for our sin once and for all, we still do sinful things, often without even meaning to. Paul put it this way in Romans 7, 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Paul got it. He knows that sometimes we don't even intend to sin, but it happens. So what do we do when we inevitably sin again? Do we give up? Have we blown our chance to be saved and have eternal life? No. John says that God is poised and ready to forgive us. He is faithful and just and forgives his people. He asks one thing of us, though. When we sin, he says, confess, be honest, be transparent, bring it into the light. I want to give you three quick reasons from the Bible that confession is a good thing for all Christians to do. And the first is that confession is freeing. We've all sadly seen the catastrophic results of a dirty secret being kept in the dark for too long, haven't we? We've seen it in Hollywood, in politics, and tragically in all branches of the church and Christian ministry, and probably in our personal lives as well, because no area of society is immune to this. When the truth is kept in the dark, eventually it comes out, and the longer it's been kept in the dark, the more damaging it often is. We established earlier, didn't we, that most plants need sunlight to grow, but there are some organisms like mold and fungi which thrive in the darkness. And this is what unconfessed sin is like. And there are some things that we really don't like to talk about. We don't like to admit things that are embarrassing or which affect our reputation or which we just feel silly for doing. But bringing it into the light with a trusted Christian friend or leader can stop the exponential growth of that mold growing in the dark. That's the first reason that John is advocating for confession. Confession can set us free from the continued growth of a sinful habit. 
It can lift the burden off of us and onto the shoulders of Jesus who says, give me your burdens. And if you confess to a trusted friend, it can give you someone to keep you accountable as well. Paul speaks in a very similar way in Ephesians 5, 13 to 14, when he says, everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And this brings us on to the second reason John is recommending confession. Confession is freeing, but also God already knows about our sin. Sometimes it is a great comfort knowing that God sees all that we do. For example, when we do a good thing that nobody else sees, we can know that God has seen it. Or when we go through something challenging that no one understands, we can know that Jesus empathizes with us in our pain and our weakness. But on the flip side, God sees all of our dirty laundry as well, all of our sin. And when we pretend that we're not sinning, not only are we kidding ourselves, but John says we're making a liar out of God. If we claim we have not sinned, he says in verse 10, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Why would we hide from God what he already knows? I very much enjoy watching detective dramas and I'm a sucker for a good police interview scene. No comment on the end of Line of Duty last week, by the way. But often the purpose of these interview scenes is to get the interviewee to confess to what they've done. Often the evidence is stacked against them. The police know that they're guilty beyond doubt. But confession, a plea of guilty perhaps, might get the person a lighter punishment. Being all-seeing and all-knowing, God has all the evidence he needs of our sin. There can be no doubt that we are sinful. Except the difference between him, one of the many differences between him and the police there, is that he asks us to confess, not so that he can punish us accordingly, not even because confession will get us a lighter punishment, but because he wants to forgive us. How wildly strange and unique is that? Imagine a police interview scene where the suspect confessed and could walk free as a result. This is scandalous grace and mercy. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This brings us to the third reason that confession is a vital and wonderful thing for us as Christians. Confession is freeing, God already knows, and God wants to forgive us. Sin kept in the dark can't be forgiven. But sin brought into the light can be consumed and written off and atoned for and covered over by the blood of Jesus, which purifies us from all sin. I want to ask you this morning, is confession a part of your Christian life? If not, why not? When I talk about confession, is it even clear what I mean by that? Maybe when I say that word, you think of Catholic confession booths, absolution by priests and Hail Marys, but none of those things are in the Bible. What is in the Bible right here in 1 John 1 is a reminder of the value of simple confession before God and to one another as well. The second of those, confession to one another, to our trusted friends, is actually a helpful gateway to the first, confession before God. Bringing something into the light with a trusted friend opens the door to bringing it into the light with God. 
I used to meet my old pastor years ago on a regular basis to catch up and pray together. And whatever we ended up talking about, there would come a time where he would divert the conversation somewhere else. And he'd simply say, how's your sin? And although that was a very blunt question, it was him giving me an opportunity to put 1 John 1 9 into action. To tell him where I was sinning, which prompted me to confess my sin before God and to know God's forgiveness again. And again, I want to encourage you to be intentional like this with your close Christian friends. Ask that question. How's your sin or your version of that question? You're not out to embarrass each other or cause each other pain or get juicy material for gossip. You're simply lovingly giving each other opportunities to re-experience God's grace and forgiveness. And you'll certainly find when you begin to confess that each one of us has sin in our lives that we need to bring into the light. Surely this is why John said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Because this practice reminds us of our equal need for God's forgiveness. And that draws us together. Walking in the light isn't about hiding our faults and failures under the surface or under the carpet. It's about admitting that they're there. And we can do that with our close Christian friends. Being honest with one another about the sin in our lives opens that door to being honest with God. We can pray together. We can hold each other accountable and we can continuously point one another towards the grace of God, reminding each other that the point of this confession isn't punishment, it's forgiveness. Now, I just want to finish with some reassuring words. As I've been preparing this series on one John, I've realized because of how it's affected me that this series is going to cause each one of us to think about our life and lifestyles and how we can glorify God more. It should. God's word is challenging. But the beauty of the gospel is that God has grace for us in our weakness and failings, as well as in our obedience. And although we are responsible for the actions we take on a daily basis, God is ultimately responsible for getting us to his kingdom. One of my favorite quotes is from Jonathan Edwards. I quote this all the time, who said, I contributed nothing to my salvation except the sin that made it necessary. John doesn't say that a Christian who does something sinful has blown their chance at being saved. In fact, that's the gospel. We can't blow that chance because being saved was never up to us ultimately. God holds our salvation in his hands, which means we're secure. When I was a teenager, this is just one way of looking at this. I used to go rock climbing a lot with my dad. And when we went climbing outdoors, we take turns being the climber and being the bee layer, the person on the ground holding the rope attached to a secure device at the side. Now, I know that these days free solo climbing, as in without a rope, is pretty popular, but we were not into that, not brave enough we were very comfortable climbing, knowing that it was our responsibility as the bee layer, no, as the climber, sorry, to find good handholds and footholds, to work out where our hand or foot was going next. But it was the bee layer's responsibility to keep us safe if we were to slip. When we slip up, God's grace is perfectly strong enough to keep hold of us. We don't need to doubt our salvation because that would be doubting him. We simply need to think about where our hands and feet go next and trust God to hold the rope. At the beginning of the next chapter of 1 John, as we're going to see in a bit more detail next week, the author, John, lays out why he's written this letter, and he says, my dear children, 
I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. An advocate is someone who speaks on your behalf and in your favor. If you're worried today because you're not sure if you've been living in a godly way, let me assure you that God loves you. If you believe in him, he's holding on to you more tightly than you could ever hold on to him. You have an advocate, and that advocate is God's son himself, Jesus Christ. So in summary, God asks us not to sin and instead to glorify him with our actions. But when we do sin, he has endless grace for us. But he asks that one thing of us, a habit that we can cultivate in our lives, which for many reasons is a wonderful thing. Honesty, transparency. He asks us to walk in the light as he is in the light by confessing our sins through which we get to experience his grace and forgiveness again and again. Well, I'm going to close in prayer. And there's a a bit of a response that comes with this as well, I think. I wonder if uh, you're comfortable doing so. You might want to put your hands out in front of you as a, a sign that we want to bring everything we are before God. I want to encourage you to take a moment now as we continue in prayer and song worship to think about whether there's anything going on in your life which you've been hiding from your closest friends and family and you've been trying to hide from God. He knows about it already and he wants you to confess so that he can forgive you and lift this burden from your shoulders. If something comes to you that you want to kind of bring into the light, well, then grab somebody online after the service or meet up outdoors and uh, or over the phone or whatever and pray together. Why 